Welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. I'm very excited today because we've been talking about the damaging effects of blame, and we have a guest with us today who's had some experience with that in his life. The guest's name is Paul Kohler. I'll tell you a little bit about Paul, and then he'll come on and introduce himself, and then we can talk about our topic. Paul was a young man. I knew him when I was probably a teenager. He's a couple years older than I am. And one of the things that happened with Paul, he wanted to be an art student and wanted to go to art school. And he was at Wayne State University going to school. And Paul, you were in the process of getting your life started, getting this degree under your belt. You wanted to be an art teacher. And something happened in the middle of all that that was devastating at least devastating to me, and I'm certain it was to you. Tell us a little bit about the story that happened back when you were in your early 20s around the same time you were going to Wayne State University. Tell us about what happened. Sure. Thanks for having me, Fred. I had just turned 21. I was in school taking art classes and such at Wayne State. and I had this job. My parents were putting my older brothers to school, so they didn't have the money for me, so I decided I'm going to go to school on my own. So I started saving money for it and working for it. So I took this job at a plant that was paying me a little bit more money than I had before. And it was a little more hours and it was convenient. And so I decided to work there. It was a stamping plant and they were stamping out automobile parts for automobile companies. And I was on this machine that had all of the safety features on it, but the foreman decided to run it without the safety places so that he could get more product. So he had one person starting the, the machine from the front of the machine, and I was on the back end of the machine, expected to pull the parts out. And it was a semester break, and it was like the first day of semester, and I asked the boss if I could work more hours during that time because I could you know, get some more money. So it was about half hour before quitting that day, first day that Monday, and I thought I saw the machine press go down so I went to reach for the parts at that side of it. And the operator on the other side had had trouble setting the part. So he was a little bit late getting it in. And he pulled the press to start it. And I was just reaching in to get the part out. And my hands were crushed. I don't have to explain how painful that had to be. But I'm sure everybody can imagine that. But they rushed me off to the hospital right away. And it was, like you mentioned in the last podcast, that it was a traumatic experience. First thing I thought was I would not be able to continue my education. I don't know how to ever paint or do anything in art again without any hands. But on the way to the hospital, it occurred to me that I knew that I've seen people with prosthetic hands and hooks and so on. And I knew that they existed. So I put in my mind that I guess this is what I'm going to have to be faced with the rest of my life. And I had no doubt that both hands were completely gone. But it took me to the hospital, and then the owner of the company came in to see me, and he said he was going to send me down to the specialist down at Grace Hospital down in Detroit, where the uh, medical center is now. And he was a hand specialist and thought he was going to try to save something with my hands. And I 
looking up at him and kind of, well, the half smirk saying, well, I don't think he's going to be able to do anything. And then he started getting really emotional. And I said, listen, I'm going to be okay. Don't worry. Don't get excited. I thought after I did that, I thought, what did you say that? <laughs> what would possess me to forgive this guy after losing my hands at this job? And I don't know. I can't explain it except maybe God intervened with me in some way. But anyway, that was a traumatic point in my life. And from there on, we, we traveled down to the other hospital. I think that might be when your sister was sitting with me, because I couldn't remember that event. But I do remember talking. But that was, yeah, I was so, I don't know what else from So what did you do, Paul? I mean, you lost your hands. Uh, what was the I next step? In the heat of the moment, you forgave your boss. You you know, everything's going to be okay. You right. didn't go immediately. You weren't angry at him. You didn't attack him. You didn't blame him per se. No. So, well, somehow I had compassion for him because he felt this utter pain and you could see it in his face. And somehow I just couldn't be mad at it, which I should have been. And, you know, and, and retrospectively, I mean, I did have moments of anger, especially with the foreman because he was the one who made the decision to take off the safety teachers. And I went through times of that, you know, but they were short-lived. It was not going to do anything for me. And I was thinking more positively than that. Yeah, that's a powerful <laughs> place for you to be at such a close, tender time to just losing your hands and seeing your dreams and your life flash before you without hands. I mean, that had to be a tough, tough situation to experience. It was. It was definitely. I had great support my family and my girlfriend and other friends. I remember the day before they sent me out of the hospital, I had a bunch of friends come down. I was in an 18-bed ward with all these men, and it was probably about three-quarters full. And I had my friends come and visit me once, and they brought their guitars, and we started singing songs and playing guitars on my last night there and partying up for quite a while. I thought to myself, maybe that's why they sent me home the next day. <laughs> Yeah, I was only there for four days. Well, you were probably That's causing cool. too much of a ruckus for them. They had to get you out of there. Yeah, I think maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, that's very interesting that you were able to take that position at that time. And then as you went on, you continued in art school, as I understand it. You wanted to go back and get your art degree. And tell us a little bit about that part of the story. Yeah, that was really something. When I got home and I was you know, starting to feel better, I was bandaged up. My accident happened at the end of January, and I didn't get prosthetic fittings until April. So I went a long time with just being bandaged up, and my mom and dad had to take care of me and do everything for me. But at one point, I just said, you know, I'd like to try and do some writing and drawing. So my dad taped pens to my arms, and I started drawing. And I remember saying to one of the doctors one time, I'm surprised my handwriting hasn't changed at all. And he said, well, that's because you write because you're looking for the results that your eyes used to see. So your arm just automatically moves that way. I thought, wow, that's weird. So then I started drawing, and my drawing was pretty good, and I thought, oh, that's not bad. But then I said, like, I want to paint a painting. So I put a canvas up in my bedroom and pulled out some paints, and my mom and dad would help me put some paint on the palette, and I'd start painting. And I painted a real simple kind of painting. I'd call it a waterfall. It was like an abstract, cubist kind of looking at a waterfall. And we had a student art show at the school, and I wanted to submit that for an entry into it. And I called the teacher about it and said, sure, we'd be glad to have you put one in. So I put it in the show and didn't get any big awards or anything, but I did get an honorary mention, which I thought was nice. 
then he called me and says, you know, somebody's interested in buying your pictures. Says, Would you be willing to sell it? And I thought, yeah, sure. He said, how much do you want for it? I said, well, a hundred bucks is going to seem fair. And so, yeah, I got a hundred bucks for it. But that was the moment I said, I can go on with this. I can continue with my dream. What's to stop me? So that was my instance. That was, the, that was my incentive to go. So it was uh, just having somebody interested in buying my painting that did it. I always thought that was kind of miraculous. Yeah, that's amazing uh, that someone stepped forward and saw the value of that painting and picked it up. And what a significant emotional event that was for you to have that occur. And it inspired you to continue to go on and get your degree. And you yeah. not only, you got your master's degree in art, yes. right? Where you could actually teach in the college level. Yes, that was my goal. That was your goal to teach in the college level. How did that go when you started applying to become an art teacher? Well, that was interesting. You know, timing is everything, right? It was 1973 when I was graduated. If anybody remembers history, 1973 was about the time the Vietnam War ended, and they stopped the draft. So the student enrollment naturally dropped because people didn't have to go to school to get out of the draft. And there was an overflow of teachers. So every college I went to the private app apply for, they had like buku experienced teachers applying for the same jobs. So my luck there was unfortunately not successful. So I started looking yeah, for what something else to do. I went to a guy who was a rehab counselor, and he was trying to give me some ideas. Work with me. What could you do? What skill levels? Where did you place me? Ended up putting me in an insurance company, working for an insurance company that sells workers' compensation insurance, which I was a plaintiff for workers' comp. I actually being a workers' related injury. So it seemed like a natural fit. A bilateral amputee selling workers' compensation insurance seemed like a good fit. So I did that. And I enjoyed it for quite a while. About 10 years later, I, I wasn't succeeding as much as I would like to be. So I came up with some other ideas of what I could do. I thought maybe be a consultant for insurance companies for people who are amputees and consult with what kind of equipment they need and stuff like that. I thought I had a knack for that. So I went to talk to this rehab person that I used to get the job. And he turned around and said, why don't you come work for me? You can sell my services. So that's how I got involved with the advocate services for people with disabilities. And I did that for 20 years. And that was a great job. I went all over the country doing this and talking to employers. And it was really a lot of success for me. That's great. And you were able to use the experience you had to better relate, to better understand your clients and the people you were having conversations with about the concerns and the issues they had facing them. Right. That was powerful. And then in your personal life, Paul, I always admired your ability to go through some transitional things with your family and some of the things that you had to experience that were painful and other issues that came up that were similar to losing your hands, but different. But the experiences that you went through of losing your hands and processing through that you found yourself in relationships with people who needed you and you needed them. Tell us a little bit about that, your personal life outside of work that manifested as a result of the experiences you had years before. Yeah, well, the girlfriend I had when I had my accident, I wasn't sure it was going to stay with me, but she did. And we ended up getting married 
the following fall after my accident. So that was great. We were married for 20 years. In that 20 years, we had a son born, which was a miracle in itself because my wife is a diabetic. Um, she had eight major medical conditions going on while she was giving birth. And doctors didn't think that she was going to make it. And the baby was going to make it. And the baby made it. She didn't they were going to guarantee what he would look like. Anyway, he was born successfully. She lived. She made it fine. Everything went well. So we went on and we had a good life. A few years after that, we wanted to look into adoption. Catholic Social Services, and they pointed us to some different things. And then they came to us that, would you be interested in taking a special needs child? And we both thought about that for a long time. And we thought, yeah, I think we could do that. We weren't having a lot left to get a new baby, but we considered that. Saw a few different children, and there was a few thrown at us. One, one died when we were talking about it. And then we met our daughter, Billy Jo. And she was involved in the accident that caused her to be partial paralyzed on the left side, blind, and left her, it was a closed head injury, so she was left with a mental developmental impairment of about four and a half by five-year-old. And she's still with us today, and she was quite a challenge, but it was a great adoption for us. The funniest thing, I show pictures of her and my, and my wife, and there's a similar resemblance to them in their smiles and their faces. They both have round faces, and it was kind of everybody kind of got a kick out of how much she looked like Marty. That was funny. But she was a big challenge. We had to teach her to eat, walk, talk, and now she knows the words to almost every song written. She just picks that up. No. And everybody just loves her. And she's doing really well. Our biggest dream for her was to be able to live in a group home independently and have some sort of work position or something to do during the day. And she's accomplished that so happy with her that she was able to do that. My wife, unfortunately, had a lot of medical problems go on, and in 1989, she passed away. And I always talk about people talk about losing my hands because it's a tough time to go through. I don't think there's anything worse than losing your wife. Um, that was the most devastating thing in my life, and it took a long time to heal. It's interesting. I'm involved now with a grief share group that helps people go through their grieving of loss of a loved one. Just kind of started with that a couple of years ago and it's been quite rewarding for me. And I hope it's helped a lot of other people. So after losing my wife, it took me a long time and I finally met Elizabeth, my new wife, my present wife. And we've been married for 26 years. We've had two more children. I have a daughter that's 24. And my other one is 21, and they're both doing very well. A 24-year-old is married, still attending Michigan Tech University. So everything's gone very, very well for me. Even through all the hard times and everything we went through, it's been very rewarding. And you had a chance, I understand, to fulfill your dream as a college professor for art for a short term after you retired from your career. You had an opportunity to apply and Tell us briefly about that story. Yeah, that was very rewarding. I was asked by a friend of mine who was teaching at Oakland University if I would be interested in applying for a teaching position as an art teacher for the Honors College. So I had, you know, the brightest of the kids teach art class too. And so I put up three different syllabus for the classes, and they submitted a few of these each semester. 
and they hold them up and they get teach, uh, students and teachers to look at them and say which one they want to choose. So fortunately, they chose me on, on one class, and so I, I was able to teach that class. It was just a basic art humanities kind of course. But I got the kids involved. Each student had to do some drawing. You know, each had to have a pad paper and submit a drawing every semester, each class, and we would evaluate. And it was fun, and they had a great time. So I had a couple students that talked to me later after that and said they had they enjoyed the class. I had two students submitted me in for like a teacher of the year kind of thing, the most influential teacher or something like that. And so I got this award for that from, from the school, which was kind of made me feel pretty good. That's um, awesome. But then I was chose for two more classes. And then after that, I was not being chose for a class, and then I called them up and I asked them if there was a problem or something, and they said, no, we just decided to, you know, we pick other teachers to do classes. And I said, okay, well, I've heard that before, so I just kind of got away from that a little bit. It was a little bit, you know, becoming cumbersome. And I wish I had done it earlier, of course. I would be more tuned to it. It was quite a challenge for me, anyway. But I've always liked to be able to put myself out there for myself to be in front of people. As you know, I did your class every year for 15 years. And it was my opportunity to take that opportunity in, in front of as many kids as possible. So hopefully I can influence them in some way. And I hope I did. You've influenced many people over the years, Paul. You've been an inspiration to me. You've been an inspiration to many of my students because you always brought a gift into the class that not too many other people could. And when we look at blame, and that's kind of our topic here, when we look about situations in these kids and young people and all of us, even adults, we can look and say, if only this would have happened, then I would be this. Or, you know, they're anger or bitter about something that happened in their past and they can't get over it. You use the word forgive. You're able to forgive your boss very early on in the process of what you went through. But so many people lament their pain, lament their situation, and they live with their pain and suffering for years and sometimes a lifetime. So I'm curious, you know, you were able to make that shift so quickly. And what I have found has been much harder for other people to stop the blaming. I didn't stop blaming until I was about 35 or 40 years old for a situation that occurred in my life. And I always marveled at how quick you were able to forgive and how quick you were able to move on. So the impetus for me teaching the material I taught and then writing the book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, and also the impetus for these podcasts is that I hope that we can find a way to encourage the listener and the reader to consider, self-examine their situation, look at unresolved blame in their heart of somebody else or themselves, and are they still living out their beliefs and values and circumstances in their life, still being angry and still in a place of unforgiveness? And so I would ask you, as we reflect on this and giving the gift away that you were able to experience your own life, what would you say to somebody who is stuck in being held in bondage by perpetual blame? that they have toward themselves or another person. Yeah. Well, I think what I would tell someone is to examine what their blame is. What is it for? And what benefit is it to blame? I was very blessed with knowing 
early on and had many reinforcements of it to how lucky I am. Coming home on a Friday after the accident, in the mail, I had a letter from Uncle Sam asking me to go into the Army. I was being drafted. So I kind of contemplated that as a real sign to me that, hey, this accident is pretty bad, but it could have been a lot worse. If I had my hands, I'd be going off to Vietnam someplace. So that kind of was one reinforcement for me. So I, my thoughts were, what could be worse than what you have now, what, what you're dealing with? And then try to find the good side of it. What are you getting from this? What's it helping you do? What is it keeping you from? Is that keeping you from something that you probably would not benefit from? So if you're angry and you hold anger and you're angry all the time, it's keeping you from having joy. It doesn't let you see joyful things because you're always angry. So you're cheating yourself out of life. But that's what I saw. When I started feeling sorry for myself, I said, but, you know, I'm lucky to be here. I'm lucky to have what I have. I'm lucky to have my wife. You know, so you look at the good things and try to overweight the thing that's bothering you so much. I saw people who hated or were angry just destroy them. And it just made them so bitter and so unhappy. And what good does that do? So it's, I don't know. You tell people things, but you can't make them see it. Well, you had to, being in the role you were in, you had a lot of people come to you as as you were a consultant and you were there to help people transition from a place of physical disability. And yeah. in most of those situations where they're physically disabled, there was probably plenty of blame to throw around. And you saw probably both sides of that. You saw people who were throwing blame around and were bitter and angry and just so unhappy in their life. And then you saw other people who were able to look more positively at the situation and see how they could use that situation for good. So the dichotomy of those two ways we respond is huge. You know, Viktor Frankl talked about in his book, A Man's Search for Meaning, he talked about some things can be taken away from us. Our liberty can be taken away from us. Our hands can be taken away from us. Our legs can be taken away from us. Our eyesight can be taken away from us our physical ability to move around and be paralyzed, can, that can be taken away from us. But one thing that can't be taken away is we never lose our freedom to respond. We always have the ability to respond in a way. So, Paul, have you seen people who have got stuck in blame and stuck in anger, stuck in bitterness, and then you saw people who took personal responsibility for how they were responding for the situation? Yeah, you can't take personal responsibility for your hands being cut off but you can certainly take personal responsibility for how you responded. So how do you see that dichotomy play out with all the people that came before you and presented their life situation, their life circumstance? What did you notice? What was characteristic about the people well, who could I, and the people who couldn't? I saw some things that I did not expect to see, but I think it's something that other people would not have seen. And that is, I saw people pretend that they're doing fine because they're in front of me. Because I'm doing fine, and I was doing so well, and I was a positive influence, so they pretend to be that. And yet I know they're not, because I hear what other people say. You know, I was asked to talk to many people and talk to people who are struggling or having a problem or bitter or something. And when I confront them, oh, they're just not happy as me, and it's just fine. And I can't go ahead and accuse you of lying to me. <laughs> So it's an unusual situation. I guess it's probably like a doctor probably gets it all the time. You know, he talks to people who are sick. He says, "Well, oh, I'm doing fine, doctor." You can't make people tell the truth, I guess. So 
that's one thing I saw a lot. And people who were down, bitter, sometimes I would see some, like, oh, I, I think I get what you mean. I think I can see something. And then there's other people who just don't. They're just closed-minded, and they just won't accept it, and I kind of feel sorry for them. But there seems to be nothing I can say to change their mind. Yeah, difficult to watch those two things play out. You know, one thing I always have come to believe is you can't want something for another person more than they want it for themselves. Sometimes we feel like we want to step in and get someone to see it in a different way and be there as facilitate them or help them pull themselves up by the bootstraps. But you just can't want it more for another person. They want it for themselves. So what do you think prevents people from feeling that they deserve it, they're worthy of having a different way of looking at it? Because many times my experience has been they just don't feel they're worth it. And they just, they're diminished. It leads to depression and sadness. And one of the things I've observed in your life is your life was worth it. I mean, you're looking right now, just in this conversation, you talked about half a dozen things in your life that made everything worthwhile. And what is the trigger point? What do you see as the mindset of the person being that's able to see their worth and be able to create something out of their mistake of the past or their unforgiveness of the past? What needs to happen for them to shift to that different place? Well, for me, it's my spiritual relationship with God that makes a big difference. You know, when I'm talking to someone who does not have any faith in anything, then I try to get them to acknowledge what do they have faith in. What positive motivation do they have? And from what source do they get motivated? And it's trying to push them towards that. Other than spiritual, it's difficult. I have friends struggling with different problems, but their bitterness and their anger keeps them from addressing those issues very well. So I just try to encourage them. I tell them, just keep trying, keep working at it, keep doing what you need to do. But I just try to keep encouraging them that going forward is better than going backwards. You know, one of the things that you brought up, having your spirituality, having faith in God, and one of the tenets I keep to remind myself of is through everything that happens in life, there's a purpose, and God has an intention for that. And you know, my role is to find out what that is and have faith and trust in God that he can then solve the problems for me and I don't have to be the one solving all the problems. So I think to have that faith and trust in God is huge. And you're saying for you, that was the thing that allowed you to stay in the place of health and good feelings and trusting and knowing that all this was going to turn out. And you said you're very blessed to have the experiences you had with your family and the experience you've had throughout your life. And it's wonderful that you can take a situation that is such a traumatic situation as a young man and have faith that that'll all work out in the end. And it's a powerful testament to your spirituality, your faith, and your trust in God. You know, for me, Paul, I admire that in you because it took me a lot of years to figure that out. For me, I didn't trust God. I was angry at God. I was mad at God. And I was bitter that God wasn't there for me and didn't protect me from the situation from my brother's death. 
and it took me probably until I was 35 or 40 years old that I was really able to say, wait a minute, there's something more to it here than that. When was your spiritual enlightenment or awareness, and when did you decide to turn it over and trust God for the situation you were going through? Well, I was brought up in a Christian home, so I had faith in God from a very young age. However, as a teenager, you drift off. When I had my accident, I was really not practicing my faith at all. But things started coming to me after the accident, having this mindset that I know I'm going to be able to be okay, I'm going to get prosthetic hooks, and I'm going to go on, and then having my pain sold, and all these different things that happened to me just kind of started thinking, you know, I felt like I was not in charge of what was going on in my life. And then to graduate and have that acclamation, I get letters from people all over the country just expounding how I impressed them and how I influenced them and how they're going to change their life and this and that. I just so many things. It's just like, wow. So those kind of events in my life just made me realize that this has a purpose, a powerful purpose. I mean, even when I would go up to gas, you should pump gas. People on the other side of the pump would say, God bless you. You really impacted my life or something. They just, just watch me pump gas. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I've I got to be found. I'm an example everywhere I go. Yes. Because it's so obvious. And I love when children come up because it's just so much fun to bend down with them and show them how my hook's working, let them touch them, and I'll squeeze their finger or something. And just, you know, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, you talked about when you graduated from college and got your first bilateral amputee to get a master's degree in art in the country. So that made national news. And people were sending you letters from all over the country and how you inspired them, just untold the number of people that you've influenced. And without a question, of all the speakers I've had come and talk to my students about these situations and circumstances, your story was always the most powerful. And one of the things I always wanted people to do when I said, Paul, before you leave and the class is dismissed, there's one door out of this room. I want you to stand by the door and offer to shake everybody's hand. And it was amazing to watch these kids not know how to grab your hand, not know what to grab. They were uncertain as they shook your hand and they felt a cold steel. And behind that cold steel was a warm heart. And for them, that was such a clear delineation and a significant impact. And I've heard from my students years and years later after taking the class and meeting you and remembering you, the significance that you've had on their life, as you have on so many other people. You've been an inspiration to many, and we appreciate that, and I've appreciated that. And getting to know you more and and better over the years has really meant a lot to me and meant a lot to what I do when I teach, because I'll never forget the story. And it wasn't so much the way you were handling it, it was the way I was handling it. And I figured, why is Paul handling this so much better than I am? And it happened to you, but you seem to handle it better than I did. And that was really my wake-up call to my crisis of faith and not trusting in God. And there's a reason and a purpose behind it all. And it took me years to figure that out. And of course, because it's taken me so long to figure it out, I had to write a book about it and teach a class about it. And I think a lot of people have experienced the things you and I have experienced, Paul. And the dichotomy that plays out in our discussion is how you handled it so quickly and I handled it so slowly. However, 
we handled it the best we could with the resources we had at the time. And you had faith and trust that there was a good reason behind it all. I took me a little longer to figure that out, but you've been an inspiration to me and to many. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for joining our call. Do you have anything else you would like to say before we close or any words of inspiration you have? Well, my only word I say is just don't let any circumstance get the better of you to try to see where it can take you. It's always told that every experience that we receive in our life, whether it's negative or positive, is a learning process. And like I say in the class, I say, life is not a spectator sport. You have to participate. So you can't participate if you're angry and bitter. No, and that's a huge message for us all. So, Paul, thank you very much for joining us on Ride the Elephant today. Thank you all the listeners for listening in. And join us next week for another episode of Ride the Elephant today. Have a great week, everyone. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. Thank you.